0: Alan on politics. Together we we'll stand, divided we we'll fall. Come on now, people, get on the ball and work together. Come on, come on, let's work together. Good morning and welcome to Alan on politics. Once again, this is Alan and I'm about to babble on about politics. Um, I see that I have at least a couple people joining me this morning, and hello to you both. Uh, If anyone else is out there to be able to use the chat feature, you have to sign on to your YouTube account, and then you can type in things that I will see when I look over at the screen like this. Otherwise, when I'm looking at the camera to talk to you, uh, I'm not looking at the chat. So I don't know what you're saying until I stop. I'm going to speak for a while about uh, the... Ukraine crisis which is in the news now and then uh, after about 15-20 minutes I'll take a look to see what kind of questions or responses I'm getting from you all. Now originally I had planned to talk about something else but then Russia invaded Ukraine as I'm sure you know and I wasn't I didn't think I had anything of unique interest to say about this because by now there's been lots of commentary on TV and you've heard all that. But because I had been paying some attention to what was going on with the, uh, with the former Soviet Union over the last several decades and with Ukraine and with NATO, which you'll hear over and over again is a key part of this story, it was on my mind and I, was, uh, I had some thoughts about it. But what really provoked me to talk about this today is oddly enough, you know how they have those little uh, free books in small libraries. People build those little houses and put them on a post outside their house and you could drop off books for other people to read and pick up books to read. Well um, a couple of months ago I think I saw this book sitting there about the history of Vietnam particularly the American involvement in Vietnam and i just recently this last week started reading through it now i knew most of the story this anyway but because this is a nice thick book it goes into a lot of detail and i lived through that era Uh, i was uh in my late teens early 20s when i was draft age the war was still ongoing and so it was pretty heavy on my mind and i was paying attention to what was going on and i do see parallels between the united states approach to Uh, its problem in Vietnam at the time in the 60s and 70s and the problem that we are having I I hate to say we because I don't feel like I have any decisions over over what the United States is doing the problem the United States is having with Russia now in the Ukraine now don't jump ahead of me and assume that I mean I think we're going to get into a shooting war with Russia sending troops in and getting bogged down there and all that, as we did in Vietnam. I was thinking more about the approach to the use of power that the United States used in Vietnam and has used with Russia and in general uses it for foreign policy and often for domestic policy at times. And since I'm a political scientist, I have a lot of interest in power. So that's going to be the topic for today the use of power by the United States, how it understands power, and how I think there are really two forms of power. One of them is the obvious one, that is the uh, promise of rewards and threats of punishment. I call this material power because you have power over material resources that you can then use as inducements. But the other one, the other form of power, is more important more subtle and maybe a little more hidden so that people don't see it as easily i think we easily come to see power as the ability to threaten people and get them to do what we want to do but it's more complex than that there's what i call moral power maybe not the best term but the general idea is that power really comes not from control over material resources, because a single individual can only control so much, but from human beings acting in concert. And the question is, how do human beings come to act together for particular goals? Now, one way you can get people to act together is by promising them more rewards and threatening punishments. And that'll work for a time and work to a certain degree but more importantly is how people come to trust each other so that they can work together for common goals, particularly when you're able to tap into their aspirations as human beings, how they will cooperate and learn to trust each other, and that creates social bonds that are strong enough to carry over over the long term. In fact, um, you wouldn't have anybody rise to power in institutions like governments so that they had control over material resources to uh, reward and punish they would never come to power if they hadn't first been able to gather around them a group of people who had the same aspirations even if it was not aspirations to get more power and were able to trust each other to some degree in that small group that works together to rise to different kind of power the first kind of power material power the stronger the bonds of trust and the stronger the tie to a common aspiration the more successful they'll be if they let that deteriorate then they're going to fall apart and lose what power they had so the second form of power which is more subtle is more important now let me talk a little bit about Vietnam and Ukraine and how I see those paralleling each other and it is maybe to nobody's surprise right now, I see the parallel in how the United States tends to rely on threats of punishment and ignore other parties' aspirations and ability to trust what the United States says. So in Vietnam, we saw this in spades. Uh, If you've read anything of the history of how we got into Vietnam, but we got in there because we wanted to prop up France's colonial rule after the Second World War when Ho Chi Minh, the leader of the uh, Vietnamese Communists, was trying to convince us that he could be an independent, uh, neutral country between the Soviet Union and the United States and that he really wanted to govern. um, he, He really wanted a national government that was independent of China or the Soviet Union, but we didn't listen to him. We thought we could simply do as we wanted And uh, France eventually gave up, couldn't use its superior military might to get the the Vietnamese nationalists to give up. And the United States stepped in with the same kind of thing. We thought if we escalated our ability to leverage our own power in the sense of threatening punishments like bombing and shooting and the rest of that, eventually they give up. And we got in deeper and deeper and they weren't giving up. And we just could not find a way out because we couldn't believe that our superior military ability and our superior economic resources could not induce them to change their behaviors. That really, for them, the goal of having control over their own country was preeminent. That they were willing to take all kinds of punishment and refuse inducements in order to have national independence. We just couldn't believe that. Now, what's the deal with Ukraine and the United States? Well, you may have heard this already if you've been trying to get some background on this, but I'm just going to run through a few points to show you the parallels in the approach to power. Let me take a second here to have a sip of my tea and wake up a little more fully. Okay, so we know way back when um, the Soviet Union was a thing. And we had a Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, The United States was instrumental in creating NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was a pact between the United States and other countries, such as in Western Europe and Canada, over here in North America. You know where Canada is, I assume. It was a mutual defense pact that if any of these countries were attacked, the others would come to their defense. And the whole idea was to threaten the Soviet Union so that they would not try to expand their boundaries into Western Europe. That was the main goal that they were trying to achieve. Now fast forward, and we reach 1985 when Mikhail Gorbachev uh, rises to a leadership position over the Soviet Union. He's a reformer. He wants to reform both their political institutions and their economy and he's approaching the United States. He wants better relationships with the West because he doesn't want to spend so much on the military. He wants to spend more time uh, improving their economy and uh, freeing up their political institutions. Now, in 1988, the first George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, becomes president. And a couple years later, his secretary of state, James Baker, makes a promise to Gorbachev that if Gorbachev allows Germany to be reunited. Now remember, Germany was split between half of it being an ally of the West and half of it being under the control of the Soviet Union. If Gorbachev allowed Germany to reunite, we would not expand NATO and several other european leaders repeated that promise to gorbachev okay that's what they told him behind the scenes but a few years later 1999 secretly the bush administration adopted a policy that was created by a guy named paul wolfowitz Um, i think he had a role in the iraq war too which come to think of it with all this commentary about russia invading ukraine and how this is unprecedented since the second world war uh, people are forgetting how the United States invaded Iraq under the, um, falsified uh, claims about what was going on there. Anyway, that's an aside. So a few years later, um, let me let me check my notes. What year was it? It was 1999. Okay, first Wolfowitz doctrine was that uh, the United States would not allow any country become a serious challenger to our power anywhere in the world. And we are thinking particularly of Russia. We did not want Russia to come to, um, to to gain enough power to challenge us again. So that in 1999, jumping a little bit ahead after the creation of the doctrine, we expanded NATO into Poland the Czech Republic and Hungary against their promises to Gorbachev. Now what was the thinking behind this? The thinking was they're in a weakened position. We are in a much stronger position. We don't have to allow them anything. We can bring military bases closer to them into countries that are nearer the former Soviet Union. Uh, The Soviet Union had dissolved a little bit before that uh, in 1991 or so. But we were threatening Russia now with expansion of NATO in order to check them from gaining any power. So we broke our promise not to expand NATO. We moved military equipment into countries closer to Russia, which infuriated Russians. Vladimir Putin, who was not well known at the time, became president of Russia around that time. And he approached the United States and NATO and Europe and asked if Russia could join NATO and become part of the Mutual Defense Pact. They would be willing to help defend other countries if they would be willing to defend Russia. Uh, He was rebuffed and it goes on from there. NATO continually expanding in 2004, it expanded to Romania and the Baltic states and they were also angry about our intervention in Yugoslavia. Uh, which is which was a, a nation at the time that uh, fell apart and became what we now call Baltic states. Um, and in 2007, Putin had enough, and he and he said in unequivocal terms that he regarded this continual expansion of NATO nearer Russia's borders as a provocation, and they were not going to put up with this indefinitely. Well, what was the uh, response of the United States? That. NATO is going to expand into Georgia and the Ukraine, which are right on the border with Russia. That's how this began. It was through the United States thinking we had the power to force Russia to accept whatever terms we wanted to impose upon them, move military bases closer, and with the idea that we are not going to allow them in any way to expand or to uh, create a sphere of influence for themselves, of course, uh, We participated in a coup in 2014 in Ukraine to remove a pro-Russia president and help install somebody who was more friendly to the West. Uh, We began sending military equipment to Ukraine to protect it from Russia, which looked very threatening to Russia. And of course, Russia responded by grabbing the Crimea, saying they're not gonna allow a NATO military base on the uh, Naval port there uh, and attention just rose from there so that's how we got into this now what's the point I'm trying to make has primarily to do with the reliance on one form of power and the arrogance that comes with having that kind of power in your hands when you have the material power to punish to hurt another party and you see them in a weakened position and you continually threaten them with punishment if they don't do what you wish and just ignore their wishes, it's going to eventually cause resentment. And there will come a point where they get fed up and they're not willing to accept that anymore. We can't just pretend that we had no role in creating the debacle in Ukraine, just like we can't pretend, although we tried for a while, that we were following a futile course in North Vietnam that arrogantly presumed that anybody who's weaker than us can be pushed around, that any nation will do our bidding simply because we have the power to try to force them to do it. In politics, and governance, it's the same thing. People ignore the importance of having people work together to build trust. And to have common aspirations that strengthens their bonds, their ability to work together, and relies on the idea that somehow you can use laws and the threat of force and the threat of jail and the rest to keep people from uh, acting in ways you don't want them to. Now, what do I mean here in the United States? There's been a, a great erosion of trust in government over the last 50 years or so. We know that the government has lied in an to us in a number of ways, that it's not responding to a lot of the uh, needs that people have, that it's been corrupted by money, and that a lot of policies are uh, created to to advance the interest of corporations and rich people. We know that our aspirations as people for freedom, for economic um, security and stability are not being met, and the government seems out of touch and it wants to rely on things like um, demonizing protesters and uh, people who are dissatisfied, uh, Trump supporters even, who are angry at the whole political establishment and are using Trump as a, as a wedge to, to make that uh, dissatisfaction known. They're simply written off. Uh, the, the assumption is that if we're in power, we can do as we please and ignore what's happening to the people that we're trying to control that's my whole point here there are two forms of power the form of uh, using rewards and punishment can only go so far and governments collapse when they start losing trust and uh, start losing touch with the aspirations of the parties that they are trying to um, get to do their bidding all right, so let's see what we got in the comments section here. Where are we at? It's already about 850, so I did talk for quite a while. How about that? All right. <laughs> okay, let's see. Gorbachev should have insisted on a written treaty. Uh, the, the Western side, what their excuse was when Yeltsin later, uh, was it Yeltsin? Because the Soviet Union dissolved. Here's, here's what they said. The treaty no longer held because it was with the Soviet Union and Yeltsin had dissolved the Soviet Union. Our treaty was not with Russia, which seemed like a pretty fine point. Uh, Legalistic, you might say, and it wasn't bought. Uh, It just caused further resentment. It's like, they're not gonna say, well, okay, you're right, it wasn't really with Russia, so we can't complain. Now they said, well, the idea was, if we allow uh, Europe to start reuniting and leaning toward the West, you're not going to threaten us militarily. You're not suddenly going to be moving military bases and military equipment closer to us. All right. Um, any other comments, questions out there? There's a delay between the time you put in your comments and the time I see them. Nope, not seeing any comments. At least the chat feature is working this week. It wasn't working last week, so I do see some comments. Uh, let me let me give some further thoughts about those two forms of power. Okay, here we have a comment. Let me read it. Putin seems to lack all moral power when he has to justify the invasion by calling the Ukrainians Nazis. Well, there are literal Nazis in Ukraine, especially in uh, eastern Ukraine, that are trying to fight for uh, freedom from... Uh, I don't, I don't. want to get bogged down in, in things where I, the details are not too fresh in my mind, but there are. There's a difference between Eastern Ukraine and Western Ukraine. Eastern Ukraine is more pro Russia. Western Ukraine is more pro European. And of course, Nazis are anti-communist, and they regard still somehow Russia as being communistic. So there's there's a lot of um, just like here in the United States, we have neo-Nazis. Same thing in Ukraine. they got a lot of far-right people who are literal Nazis and who have uh, carried forward traditions of the Nazis being against Russia, being against communism, being against supposedly totalitarianism. Um, But I'm not trying to defend Putin, but putting myself in his shoes, I can see where he would become angered and decide to take a stand at some point. Now, whether he's helping things or not, whether his, uh, his actions were justified, I don't know. I, I haven't formed an opinion about that. I don't have any influence over Putin. Supposedly, I have some influence over the United States in how I vote and what I do. I don't think I have that much influence, though. But really, my point is more about understanding power. And here, where I was going a few minutes ago was to say the exemplar Of a form of moral power is certainly not Putin. It'd be more like someone like Mohandas Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., because they relied almost entirely on their ability to tap into the aspirations of people and to get people to trust each other to work towards those common goals. And particularly, people were able to put their trust in them as leaders. That was a form of power that's very, very, um, that could do quite a bit of um, good without relying on the threat to punish people or the ability really to reward them directly. So there are examples where this form of power, this hidden form of power comes much more out in the open and it gives us a glimpse of what is possible in the political world if we start to recognize and rely on that form of power more than on the form of power that we're more familiar with, which sometimes ends up hitting us back in the face so i'm not seeing any other comments it's uh we still got about five minutes i will confess that this eight thirty time in the morning has not turned out to be ideal for me because i find myself not quite prepared when i have to turn on the camera it is um uh, It does get my adrenaline flowing and gets me thinking quick about what i want to talk about Uh, not seeing any comments at the moment i wish it wasn't so slow doing this what's going to happen now in the ukraine that's not a it's not in the chat but it's something that's on my mind and i'm okay i got a text message from somebody chat isn't working all right here's a question sanctions and shut show of power have not worked what steps of the other power can we actively take in regards to ukraine now and supporting them well that's a really tough question it's like if you've been doing something for decades that isn't working and you've totally destroyed trust in your intentions how can you suddenly now change direction Uh, the obvious thing that they can do uh united states and nato is just pledge outright just say, we're not going to allow Ukraine to become part of NATO. We're just not going to. We'll we'll promise it flat out publicly that we're not going to. That might help. Haven't been willing to do this so far. Uh, A lot of times we say publicly, well we have no intention of doing that, but we don't promise not to do it and we are moving military equipment in there. Of course now we've got a good excuse To move military equipment in. Um, So, I don't know. It it takes time to get people to trust you. And it takes time to get to recognize and acknowledge other people's aspirations. I think it's a long-term process. It's not a quick and easy solution to anything. But to start in that direction would be, uh, first of all, to say we're not going to move closer. And we're going to start taking seriously the fact that Russia feels threatened. Instead of continually, you know, and this is, this is a, a, like a psychological issue almost. The things you see in yourself that you're most ashamed of are the things that you project onto other people, right? I don't know how true that is, but that's a pop psychology principle that we often hear. And the United States is doing the same thing here. It continually uh, talks about the threat of Soviet expansionism. At the same time, we're continually expanding our power, using that term, we loosely again. So we're doing exactly what we say they're trying to do. And it's forcing them into a position where they have to try to draw a line somewhere. And we use that as evidence that drawing that line means that they can't be trusted. Because obviously, why would they object to the United States, having NATO move closer to them, if they didn't have the plan to somehow attack NATO or attack Ukraine or attack Georgia or, or expand beyond their current boundaries. It's, it's a catch-22 that we put them in. Uh, but as to how we could do things differently, I think it takes a whole rethinking of our, uh, our foreign policy and our aims for, uh, for the world. The assumption that what the, the way the United States does things is best for the rest of the world, I think, is not very well founded. There's a lot of problems here internally we should be dealing with. Maybe instead of trying to maintain the uh, uh, post-World War II order, we should uh, back off and allow other countries to build up their militaries and use some of those resources to meet needs at home. That would be another cliched liberal position that I would support all right we're about at the end of the hour i'm not sure if the chat feature stopped working or what happened uh once again Elon on politics is experiencing technical difficulties and um <laughs> not sure what to do about it other than to push on week to week and try to do a little bit better each time uh, i hope you got something out of this talk and uh, i hope those of you who are listening later In the recorded version, either in podcast form or on YouTube, you will drop in some comments on the YouTube channel where this video is, or on the Facebook page for al on Politics. And also, I have created a new Facebook group that those of you who are on Facebook can join. It's called the Freedom and Cooperation Network and I've created it in order to advance some of the principles behind my thinking that I've been trying to uh, uh, develop in these videos. Uh, I boiled down my, the main principles of my political philosophy and I put them up on that Freedom and Cooperation Network Facebook page so that you can go take a look at them and write in comments uh, where you agree, where you disagree, uh, where it seems unclear, where you're uncertain, or ideas about how, if you agree far enough with me, how we can bring these ideas into application in the real world. So check it out and please join, if you're interested, the Freedom and Cooperation Network on the Facebook, on the Facebook, on Facebook, on the face of Facebook. Uh, So that's it for this week, okay, they say, thanks, thanks for sharing your thoughts thank you for being with me thank you to these two viewers who have been with me week after week early in the morning i hope some more of you can join me in the morning and uh, i'm not sure where i'm going next week with this but uh, see what comes up hopefully not world war three keep your fingers crossed say your prayers and uh, we'll be back next week god willing all right bye